The subject for the evening talk is the Buddha Dharma. And in this talk with you this evening, I would like to uh, uh, speak about my uh, understanding of the teachings with you. I would like to speak about with you uh, the application and the significance of the very uh, essential uh, uh, teachings uh, with you and that the way that they apply, including uh, insight meditation, we pass on our meditation as a uh, comprehensive, uh, as an aspect, I'm sorry, of a comprehensive view to uh, the spiritual life. Um, one might say, I think it's fairly fair to say, in fact, that of the vari great variety of invaluable uh, Buddhist traditions which are available, perhaps the uh, Vipassana tradition, the insight meditation tradition itself, has done more to free spiritual teachings, and particularly insight meditation teachings from uh, Buddhism, the religion, and perhaps any of the other traditions. I think one might say that's reasonably self-evident in the hall here, that uh, we as teachers for a kickoff uh, are sitting uh, on the floor. Um, we don't have uh, altars. There isn't uh, uh, particular forms of dress. There isn't candles, uh, incense, and all that which can quite helpfully remind various people of the usefulness and the uh, helpfulness of what we could refer to as the religious uh, life. But the Vipassana tradition, by and large, has placed the priority uh, elsewhere, and that, as I mentioned earlier, is a kind of aspect of a comprehensive view. And in that, what, what the word Buddha Dharma, the word uh, Buddha means uh, awakening, it doesn't specifically, as James was pointing out in the opening talk yesterday evening, refer to uh, the historical character who lived two and a half thousand years ago, though obviously there is tremendous love and uh, respect for his realization and his awakening. But it's the awakening which matters. And the second thing which accompanies that awakening is the, the Dharma, uh, spelled D-H-A-R-M-A, and dharma means uh, teachings, means being with the truth of things, it means the path. All of that is reflected in a body of spiritual life which has as its primary and only object, it's very singular in purpose and vision, and that is the full, unexcelled and complete awakening of the human being. Anything else is falling far short. So when speaking of Buddha Dharma, one in fact is speaking of the teachings which are concerned with awakening. That is the essential meaning uh, of that. And those uh, teachings have as a primary focus, again, a number of specific features which are related to the life and to the experience of every human being that walks on this earth. So in that respect, whether one calls oneself uh, uh, um, 
a Buddhist or not, I think is um, largely, largely secondary. A number of people are comfortable uh, with that label and, of course, must have the freedom and the right to exercise the use of it. Uh, other people uh, don't connect with those labels very well at all and that's equally their uh, right as, as well. I also am one of those people who, who don't use the label in describing myself. And when somebody said to me, but Christopher, you're a member of the board, the International Board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, my comment was, look, if somebody invited me to be a member of the board of the Monkey Peace Fellowship, I would be just as enthusiastic. <laughs> and my goodness, they, they need one too, in the way we treat them. So in the relationship to, there's a, a genuine uh, approach which is uh, open and spacious in its uh, view of things, but as I say, it has some essential core teachings. Those essential core teachings, I feel, cannot be ignored, cannot be neglected nor, nor overlooked, and therefore to look at our life is to look at the relationship to those core teachings. And they're very, very simple and basic in their form and tremendously challenging for any human being who has ever asked himself or herself, what is it to be on this earth? What does that mean? In that, as a number of you will know, uh, the kind of founda foundation of a principle which all the teachings weave in and through find as their center point, we might say, and that is coming and culminating together in what's referred to as the Four Noble Truths. I've never quite comprehended why the Buddha has wanted to, to refer these as noble uh, truths, but he seems to have uh, been keen enough since he's repeated himself ad nauseum on these uh, Four Noble Truths. We might um, translate that in as four, I, perhaps as four major truths of life. And these truths of life, as it were, stare us in the face again and, uh, and again. And his realization, his awakening, in fact, had as its kind of core piece of insight and realization on a night in Bodh Gaya uh, two and a half thousand uh, years ago was the simple thing. There is suffering in this world. There is suffering in this world. That's the first major truth of life. Sometimes the Buddhists, to their everlasting discredit, have jumped to the conclusion in the text, in the commentaries or whatever, that life is suffering. And I would say that this particular one-liner put out by various generations and one uh, uh, still, still uh, hears it, uh, unfortunately, far too frequently, in fact, does a grave disservice to the teachings of the Buddha, to the Buddha Dharma. Nowhere in the text does this appear in 20 volumes of recorded passages. And the myth which has haunted the, the heart of the Buddha Dharma, life is suffering, has to be firmly put to rest. The Buddha says, what is suffering? And then he says, losing what one has, not getting what one wants, being separated from who and what one loves, 
and clinging and holding to body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, including thoughts and consciousness, losing what one has, being separated from what one loves, not getting uh, what one is uh, wanting and pursuing, and clinging and holding onto body, feelings, perceptions, thought formations, and consciousness. Here, in these times, in these experiences, suffering for a human being arises. If life is suffering, it is hopeless, because that makes it the ultimate truth of life. There'd be no way out. Life is suffering. It'd be an absolute given for each and every human being, in fact, each and every sentient being. Not only is it completely out of touch with your experience and my experience, because we have in our life, we do experience love, we do experience joy, we do experience happiness, we do experience contentment, we do experience interconnection, we do experience peacefulness, we do ex experience wonder and suffering comes in at times in the human being's experience. Then the Buddha speaks of what causes suffering. Second major truth of life. What causes this suffering? And you and I, when one is experiencing suffering, and he details the suffering born of greed, of hatred, of fear, of delusion, of anxiety, of possessiveness, of jealousy, of envy, and myriad other conditions of states of heart and mind where one says, here's suffering which is taking place in, that, in a human being's experience. And he asks the question, is what causes this? What, what produces this suffering? And isn't it when one is in suffering, I'm not talking intellectually in an abstract or theoretical uh, way like the philosophers and the buddhologists and the theologians like to do, and the psychologists and all the psychiatrists. When one is in the experience of suffering, isn't it all too common and all too frequent for us? In the middle of it, say, why am I like this? What has happened to me that I'm going through these waves of suffering? Why am I so unhappy? Why do I feel so depressed? Why does everything seem to be going uh, wrong? Uh, for me. Why can't I get out of this, etc. So it's not unusual that faced with a major truth of life, suffering arises in life. And the question of why, why is it like this, how is it like this? And sometimes we know, we know, we know, we know. One doesn't need to sit cross-legged for the Labour Day weekend. <laughs> we know. And so the thought arises in one's brain cells, in one's intellect, in one's knowledge, or whatever it might be. Yes, yes, I'm suffering because. But though we may come to quite authentic answers, though we may say, yes, it's because of the way I relate, Yes, because of this situation in which I have invested so much of myself in. Yes, because of this upbringing that I have had. Yes, because of these social economic pressures which influence and, 
have their impact on their life. Yes, because of my, um, the force of my conditioning. Yes, because of my karma. Yes, because of this and yes, because... have all these wonderful various solutions which a whole range of people are only too happy to tell us, providing we pay them. And in... <laughs> and our friends are willing to explain to us, and if we're, only, if, if we're only willing to listen to all their kindness and wisdom, and the Dharma teachers are willing to say as well. But to know, this is where Dharma teachings come in, to know the causes of suffering enters into the suffering and changes it. To know is to change. And this the Buddha under the tree in his magnificent wisdom and liberation and enlightenment of life realized if you know the causes of suffering you take the suffering out. And the analogy which he uses, he, he says it's like if you have a fire and you know that the cause for the continuity of that fire is putting wood on it. And all the ways that you and I have put wood on the fire of, fire of suffering in life, inwardly and outwardly. Therefore, to take the, f the fire out is not to put the wood on, to see the fire, to dissolve the fire, to break up the fire, to throw water on the fire, to, to go to the fire and see it out. So when we speak of the suffering and the cause of suffering, to know is the process of ending. And all the clever answers that one and other people provide and give, etc., etc. They each one, what she, he, we say, I'm sure the best sincerity and the best value and the best love and kindness and because who wants to see anybody suffer, others or oneself? But it's the that which makes the difference. One one who sees the causes of suffering, the conditions for suffering, the there, one who sees that has understood and has realized the major, second major truth in the same way that the Buddha realized under the tree. The seeing, the understanding makes the difference. Sometimes in the, in, in the Buddha Dharma, as it comes uh, to the West, and in fact, in the east, east of east as well, if I may um, say for a moment, I spent uh, about a decade, 67 to 77, uh, in the east, six years as a Buddhist monk in the monasteries of uh, uh, Thailand and uh, India. Had some ex exposure in the last more than 25 years now to uh, Buddha Dharma. And in the teachings dealing and concern with the liberation and, and awakening, Sometimes the, the teachings themselves can get um, what I consider um, a little bit uh, watered down. And I think one, one, whoever the one is, we, I, you, us, everybody, must need to be a little bit watchful and careful uh, of that. Some extremes of watering down is trying to be, in a way, a bit too um, popular and a bit too uh, eclectic and a little bit too broad-mindedness. And though you and I need, I think in religious life, to be very deeply concerned about narrow-mindedness, because religion is, has a history of unbelievable narrow-mindedness. It, it, it takes the can for narrow-mindedness on this earth. 
and one sees it in various forms, east and west, north and south, and the religious bigotry, etc., etc. Buddhism, to its credit, to its great credit here, has been not everywhere, not in all times, of course, largely a tolerant kind of view of life, largely, largely tolerant. And yet what can happen is we, in terms of Buddha Dharma teachings and people of practice, can go to the other extreme, not wanting to appear in any way narrow-minded, then it can shift to the ego of broad-mindedness. To me, it's just as big an ego, no difference between broad-mindedness and narrow-mindedness. Um, and somehow the hug, the focus, and um, significant, profound depths of the spiritual life get forgotten, and what happens is a kind of, uh, well, everything's all the same, let's all be nice and comfortable, let's all uh, be popularist, let it go out to as many people as possible, etc., etc., and a thinning down. I mean, who wants a pint of milk with three pints of water in it? Not me, thank you very much. And, and therefore one's got to see, keep in touch with the focus of it. And that focus, I think, reflects rather significantly and beautifully one of the essential teachings, and that is the teachings of the middle way. Therefore, in this case, not being trapped and stuck in narrow-mindedness and the, the uh, horrendous influences of that, but not also trying to please everybody and make it nice and comfortable and eclectic and full of lovely stories and, and all that, and it's just broad-mindedness gone riot. And therefore, some way the teachings concerned with the truths of life for liberation. To really, that we really, sincerely and genuinely keep that as our heartfelt focus. It's an enormous challenge for any, any human being. And so one sometimes, in the, in, in the terms of the Four Noble Truths, that one hears, I have heard it uh, said to me with, one, with concern by one or two uh, friends, that the third noble truth, which is the cessation of suffering, the realization of nirvana, liberation, the discovery of the ultimate truth of things. That when it's referred to as cessation of suffering, sometimes it's been said by teachers who ought to know better, but clearly don't, that cessation of suffering means those moments when one's mind is quiet. And those moments when one's mind is quiet, it's not the cessation of suffering, it's a temporary abeyance and a peacefulness, momentarily lovely and nice and, and sweet and certainly extraordinarily welcome to the heart and mind when it is in turbulence, just to have a moment's break from it. A moment's breathing is, is uh, sweet and nice, but they're aspects of a spiritual path but not to imagine or think, even think for a single moment, that quiet mind and being peaceful for a moment uh, is the ultimate truth of life. So the, the teachings in the very... <laughs> well, the Buddha said he beat the drum of deathlessness and, uh, and, uh, um, and there's a 
rather poor servant of the Buddha, I'm <laughs> endeavouring to do the same. <coughs> and so, when we look at the, the teachings and, the, and this, I say, essential focus, what does it mean for a genuinely and authoritatively uh, awakened and liberated and uh, enlight enlightened life there? But as I said with the, the second uh, major noble truth, it's understanding the influences of suffering. One of those, just to revert back to a moment, one of those of the second uh, noble truth, which he, he has taken, uh, this should be of interest to all the psychotherapists here, he has taken frequently a psychological component which is contributing to uh, uh, suffering. It's not the only one that he has uh, used, and the one that he's, he, the Buddha has rega regarded as standing out that much more is the wanting mind. There's often a tremendous amount of uh, discomfort about that. Well, what do you mean it's bad to want? It's wrong to want? I shouldn't want for any, anything? And so sometimes in our uh, social circles and society, naturally enough it can create some confusion. What does it, what does it mean? Why is he said of the causes and conditions for suffering one which he has referred to in a number of occasions in the great field of dependent arising of suffering, he said, look at wanting. If it seems too big a task to really look insightfully into the whole process of things which is culminating in suffering. Suffering is the experience which one is having, which one wishes one didn't have. That's suffering. The experience one is having, which one wishes one wasn't having. That is called suffering. And this suffering which arises, he said, of all the things which can contribute to it, look at wanting. And the same teachings given two and a half thousand years ago is going out this evening and I hope will go out long after the breath gets squeezed out of this body and the other teachers' bodies. Look at wanting. Look at the relationship to I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. Look how that can easily get associated and bear as a fruit, bear in suffering and pain and sorrow and anguish, frustration and fear, greed and selfishness, arrogance and conceit and all that's unpleasant if not tra tragic in the human being. Look at wanting, look at wanting. And whether wanting at times, certain forms of it have relationships to suffering. Suffering being, as I said to repeat, that which is occurring which one wishes one was free from. And the teaching says with undoubted unambiguity, straightforward, straight down the line, no fussing or messing around. A human being can be enlightened, can be awakened, can be free from suffering. To see clearly, fully, immediately can liberate the human being in the flash of the blinking of the eye. In that, in the appearance of suffering, we're not talking about certain physical sensations which are profoundly unpleasant. There are people in this hall this evening who will know exactly uh, what I mean, who are dealing with a great deal of physical pain uh, in life, um, the, the result of 
various conditions and circumstances of life which uh, can generate uh, all, all of that. I put that into the language of, of physical uh, pain that can um, occur. Sometimes, of course, the contribution to that physical pain, pain or sickness or illness or injury has, has had a very direct relationship to the condition of mind. It ha- for some people, the way of living, the value system, the compulsions, the being driven, the acts of carelessness, the ignoring of bodily life, etc., etc., that there is an emotional, psychological, mental relationship to life. And because of the inseparability of mind, heart, mind to body, that for some people, when they look at themselves, say, well, why am I sick? Why did I have this accident? What, why, how did this injury occur to me? No, in the, if they're willing to be with the major truth, there is uh, an emotional, psychological, mental factor or attitude which has contributed to it, and one knows that. And it's not easy sometimes for us to bear truth and to bear witness in our life to the way the body has affected by the inner state of mind. And sometimes we have to live with that as a major truth of existence. But for others, sickness and ill health and uh, uh, injury, accidents, you know, the um, impact of the body, nothing really directly to do with their inner life. I don't believe this New Age mumbo-jumbo for a moment that we create our own world and uh, I brought it on myself and it's all because of my past lives and, and all of that boring nonsense. That there are circumstances in people's lives where events occur and those events occur may result in sickness, biological factors, genetic factors, hereditary factors, circumstances of life factors. Even the Buddha himself um, um, died from um, mushrooms which were were poisonous. Even the most enlightened and awakened uh, life um, isn't completely protected from um, um, bodily pain and, uh, and death, obviously. As well as the circumstances of numerous other men and women who have walked on this earth who have lived a very free and enlightened life. So sometimes we look at the physical life and all of that, sickness, pain, injury, etc., etc., doesn't have to be suffering in the Buddha Dharma sense important to distinguish. It can be pain, and excruciatingly pain, long drawn out circumstances in, uh, culminating in death. Suffering in Buddha Dharma circumstances, teachings, refers directly to the inner condition of heart, mind, body, thought, perceptions, feelings. It's the inner life. The greater understanding that you and I have in our relationship to Life, the greater the wisdom, the greater the enlightenment. Generally speaking, more care and protection it gives to bodily life. Generally speaking, more care and protection. If there's wisdom in life, body is, gets, receives more protection itself. But life is not in the business of giving guarantees to any one of us. It's a major truth of life. So in the teachings, in terms of the inner life where suffering arises in life, you know, the good and the bad suffer. It's quite non-discriminatory. And what the teachings have said, 
And the Buddha uses this extraordinary um, uh, word. He uses ahamkara, ahamkara. And ahamkara is that human beings, we get lost in I-making activities. Ahamkara, we get lost. We lose our existence. We lose contact with the deep liberating truth of life which is to be found through I-making activities. And I-making activities can only come in three ways. They can only come through state of mind, I-making activity in the state of mind, only come through the state of speech, I-making activities that go on building up I, 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 getting further and further removed from the natural interdependency and interconnectedness of life. And thirdly, eye-making activities occur through one's activities. And the activities of heart-mind, the activities of speech, the activities of body, body, speech and mind. In that, eye-making activities can arise and eye-making activities will keep repeating the history of suffering because we haven't looked into I the me. And the Buddha Dharma's teachings are essentially concerned in looking into the phenomena of the I. The phenomena of my. So he says, there is this I-making activity going on, and if I could remember what the Pali word for my-making activities, which I can't, but it, you don't need to know, it's totally irrelevant, just the my-making activities. Therefore, self-knowledge in life, self-knowledge is bringing awareness to I-making activity, my-making activity, and seeing what comes with that way of living. I and my, I and my, haunts is the shadow of human existence. Teachings, the teachings themselves, they say, let us realize the truth of things in the here and now situation. Let us discover what it is and know our deep, natural freedom as a human being. To be free is to be awakened. To be awakened is to be free. To be free is to know the truth of things. To be free is to be liberated. And in that, the th on the third noble truth of things, in which the Buddha Dharma points uh, Again and again, as I say, sometimes it gets watered down in the ways that I uh, just referred to. But it's a way of looking and seeing into life. And that looking and seeing into life is such that in the listening to Dharma, or in the reading of Dharma, or watching a video of the Buddha Dharma, or um, a tape talk, or whatever the form that may come about, sometimes one says, yes, I get a sense that there is the potential, as James was saying last night, there is the potential for enlightenment, there is the potential to be uh, awakened, to be uh, genuinely a free human being with all the love and the kindness to life that can flow and does flow out of that. And then the person says, but Christopher, whoever one is listening to, but I'm just not realizing it. I'm just not seeing this clearly. And what I'm facing is my conditioning. What I'm facing is, are my habits. What I'm facing, facing is my kind of 
day-to-day -day struggle with my relationships and with my work and my study and my unemployment and my parenting and my financial situation and the global realities and the environmental problems and the injustice, etc. And, and this awakening that's spoken of and has been spoken of seems so far removed because I'm just kind of struggling to get by, so to speak, from one day to the next. And the lovely thing about the, the Buddha Dharma teaching is that if the truth isn't being realized here and now, if it isn't being realized here and now, one's not knowing the freedom of that when listening, when meditating, when in communion with another human being or group, when in the work, when at home, when out on the street, it's just the freedom of life, your birthright, remember, absolute birthright, this is, is just not realized. And the joy and the happiness and the love and kindness which comes with it naturally as leaves flower from the good trees. That with that, then the Buddha said, okay, if that's the fact, fine, see the fact, and then he says, therefore, the fourth major or noble truth of life is each of the eighth links of life in which a person has the, the duty, dharma means duty, the duty to look at each of those links. In other words, that genuine questioning of, from the human being, one will ask oneself, if I'm not free, if I'm not enlightened, if I've listened to enlightened teaching, if I have gone to uh, teachers of ultimate truth, of non-duality, of uh, immediate uh, realization, and there are those teachers on the earth, and the earth is incredibly grateful for them. And yet still, I don't see, still I haven't realized, and I've listened, and I've listened, and I've meditated, and I've listened. Still, it's simply not there. This truth, which is a great, great truth of life, of liberation in in life. Then the Buddha said, right, look at the eightfold path. And therefore, each of those links matter. And the duty, which is the dharma of a human being, is to say, in each of these links of the eightfold path, can I honestly say, as my duty, a primary duty of life, that I really am addressing each one of those links? Because if one truly is, and really looking into which of those links are weak, neglected, forgotten, denied, um, disregarded, overcome, for, uh, over, over, ignored, or whatever it might be, then enlightenment becomes a difficult thing. So, each one, in a way, is such that it leaves no stone unturned in a human being's activities of body, speech and mind. It means right understanding, right attitude, right speech, right livelihood, right action, right effort, right awareness, right samadhi, which means depth of uh, meditation or inner experience. If one looks at each one of those links, you will have seen them in the various uh, books of uh, Buddha Dharma teachings, easily available. And one needs to look at each one of those and say to one and ask oneself, "Am I neglecting any of them? Where am I? Is, are some of these, whatever, undeveloped in me? Am I just bypassing them because my I and my my is so involved 
in I and my making activities that I don't even allow myself to really contemplate on each and every one of those factors of life. And I say, if a person really does, genuinely committed, which is therefore a genuine commitment to the Buddha Dharma teachings, unwatered down teachings, that if one really looks at each one of those and addresses those, not to be perfect in each one, but to be clear about, to be comfortable with, to be in tune and in harmony with, then that maximizes the heart's receptivity. It maximizes the mental capabilities. It, and most important of all, it maximizes consciousness for liberation. Nothing can stop consciousness if a human being has really looked into all of those and said, I am willing to move heaven and earth for a free and enlightened life. I am willing to make any changes on earth. I don't care what they are for that kind of discovery there. And one has that in all the most sacred religious texts. They have been, I would say, in my lifetime of exposure and experience of spiritual teachings, had a, one of the characteristics of the text for 3,000 years, pre-Buddhist now, 3,000 years is its uncompromising conviction on the significance of the ultimate truth whether it's called God in one tradition, or suchness in another, or emptiness in another, or liberation in another, or awakening in, an, in another, or the deathless in another. The language, as I'm sure you would agree, is rather secondary and irrelevant. What's significant is the realization. The realization. And that's, so the Eightfold Path is not intended to be a long path of constant, constant, <coughs> but as a support in order to get back to realization. That's all. Just to look at very carefully each one of those. So that here, during this weekend, to some degree, yes, all of them are being used as a resource. Of course they are. And of course we're focusing on one or two more specifically. Right awareness or right mindfulness, the seventh thing. Uh, right concentration, right samadhi, uh, the Eighth link, right speech, of course, is there. Right effort is there. It's a, a livelihood, an activity which is respectful to life. So they're being cultivated in a tremendous degree. And that's important and sig significant. But that's got to be our life. Our life. If you're serious about the Buddha Dharma, that's what it's got, it's got to be your life. It can't be peripheral. And if one says it's one's life, please also be very clear. It's a life with risk. It's not an easy life. It's a life with risk. It's a life which challenges because you're going to be challenging not only the forces of conditioning side of oneself, but challenging contemporary values, social economic climate, um, the pressures of education and, and ideologies and, and the movement in time. Once one says, this needs some urgency, some exploration and commitment. Please understand, it ain't easy. One's life is there to be examined. But you provide, in your own life, between the two poles of birth and death, you provide a tremendous service to existence. And thus the question comes down again, who is willing to take the risk? Who is willing 
not to engage in narrow-mindedness and broad-mindedness, but to look deeply into things. Because if human beings don't do this, the suffering will snowball as it snowballs and as it snowballs. Sometimes people say, I said in the group today, uh, sometimes they say, oh, there's but people come on the, uh, the weekend retreat, Labor Day weekend retreat, and it's lovely and wonderful to uh, see you here. It's lovely that here on the, the West uh, Coast that people are willing to make time and space to come here and to have such a full uh, room of people is just a, a delight, and it has its own sweetness and long-term benefits for many. But actual taking commitment, as we heard, going for refuge in the Buddha Dharma, and I'm not speaking about Buddha Dharma, I think I'm trying to make myself clear about that, in terms of the orthodoxy of Buddhism and Buddhist, that never had any interest even when I was a monk, let alone now. So I'm talking about the teachings for liberation, called Buddha Dharma, that in a way the spiritual life, what it means, when that is so unshakably in the center of your life, unshakably in the center of, of your life, then one may, can say, this is the spiritual life. This may be a statement of it, or the spiritual life may not yet have been entered into. Only you, as a woman and man living on this earth, know that, not for me to tell you. Is it in the center of one's life, or is it a peripheral interest? For some here, it's the very center of their existence. Everything else moves around the understanding, the Dharma of life, and, the, and that for liberation, and a free and caring and loving life. And that's an incredible, as I say, challenge for any human being to embark upon. And I say all of that has its widespread, not only personal and social, but political and uh, economic and global considerations. Instead of obsessing about more, 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 and more, as our various uh, influences in our society do, constant living in promises, and maybe succeeding in some of them at the deprivation of others worldwide, we have to, instead of having that growth expansion in that I and my making activity way, I think the shift has got to be where is the suffering, what are the causes of suffering, where is the liberation from suffering, and what is the approach and path to liberate suffering. And that's got to permeate the thinking of any loving, caring, thoughtful human being as their first priority. And that has to be right from you and I as, as people on the earth and into the corridors of power in Washington, into the corridors of the universities, into the corridors of the corporate world, into the corridors of our local community. Therefore, to bring the joy and the love and the awareness and the compassion out of the human being. Why? Because we've got the priority dead right. We've got it right in the center. To take the suffering out and to let the joy come back in where it's rightfully the birthright of a human being, to live a life in which the human being can come to the end of her or his life and say, it's been an extraordinarily wonderful life.
rich in happiness and love and understanding and care and compassion and uh, a freedom which is greater than my own death. And that's what those, these teachings are about. And I say, please, don't water them down. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with love. May all beings live a free life. So let's have a couple of silent minutes together, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.